<clears throat> this is Memorial Day weekend, and um, so I want to—I just want to take a moment and, and pray for families and remember those that gave the ultimate um, sacrifice for our freedom. And you know, um, America, in a big picture, is really a very, very young nation when we think of the history of the world. And we can think back, you know, to, um, you know, most people aren't real big history buffs, but we remember, you know, starting now and moving back, we can think of wars and conflicts. But, you know, there's a lot of wars and a lot of conflicts, even within our nation, that, that unless you really were a person who read and studied history, you wouldn't even know the names of them. And there's men and women who have given their lives in conflicts that we don't even know exist today. And, but the reality is, uh, not just in, in our nation, but we can go beyond the founding of our nation and there are men and women who gave a price for freedom that even allowed our nation to be born, to be birthed. We should be thankful for that. Um, and you know, ultimately the one we're most thankful for is Jesus Christ who gave his life to give us our ultimate freedom. Amen? Father, we are thankful on this Memorial Day weekend. This Memorial Day is a day we set aside and we remember those, Father. We honor those who gave their lives, gave the ultimate cost, the ultimate sacrifice uh, for freedom's cause. And Lord, we do stand here today freely without fear of reprisal or, or anything, God, in this nation where we can freely worship and freely speak. And we're thankful for that. We realize, God, that didn't come without a cost. So, Lord, we lift up families today who painfully remember uh, loved ones, whether it be recently or whether it be distantly, who've given their lives for the cause of freedom. Thank you, Father God. For the freedom that you have blessed us with here as Americans. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom that you've blessed us with in Christ. Lord, that word, freedom. Lord, it's an important word. One that we, I believe, take for granted too often. Father, we just pause for a moment today. And we thank you for the freedom that we've been blessed with in every way our civil freedom, our spiritual freedom, our religious freedom. Father, we thank you. And we give you honor and we give you glory because we would have none of these blessings apart from you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Praise God. All right, open your Bible to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2 is where we are. Titus 2. Now, we, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we began Titus 2. And we looked at the exhortation uh, of older women um, to younger women. Likewise, older women exhort the younger women, Paul writes. We're going to back up to the top of this chapter, and we're going to look specifically at Paul's instruction to Titus uh, that the older men would exhort the younger men. I'm going to read to you the first, uh, let's just, just read the first 
two verses, and then we're going to skip down and read verses 6 through 8. Titus chapter 2, verses 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. Now let's skip down to verse 6. Likewise, exhort the younger men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and corruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. So Paul is continuing this letter. Now, remember, the best way we can understand the Bible is to let the Bible interpret itself, right? So sometimes when we're teaching through a book like this and we stretch it out, we kind of forget about the things that were preceding. So always remember that when you are reading the Scripture, for instance, this is a very short book. It's only three chapters long. But remember that originally this was just a letter. And so it didn't have numbers, it didn't have chapter and verse. And so they would have literally received this letter and this church on the island of Crete would have assembled together men, women, boys and girls, young and old. They'd all come together and Titus, the pastor, would have read this letter to the church. And they would have read it as one piece We're just kind of taking this letter apart and we're working through it. But as we take it apart and we work through it, we need to remember that we we can't understand Titus chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. We can't understand that apart from all of chapter 1. And so it all flows together here. And so Titus is being instructed by the Apostle Paul and he's telling them, he's telling Titus, he He goes through, and and remember, we go back to the very beginning of this book, and he talks about the faith of God's elect, and he talks about the truth, and he talks about the truth which accords with godliness. In other words, truth translates into godly living and a godly life. And, And anyways, he goes on, and he then begins, he says, For this reason, Titus, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So Titus is instructed to set in order the things that are lacking in the church. And one of those things was qualified men who were grounded in sound doctrine, faithful, able to teach. And so Paul begins, as he he goes here, this chapter 2. Remember, Paul didn't put that 2 there, but Paul says, but as for you, that but there tells us that it's a continuation of the thought there. So he gives this qualification for these elders. And he says in verse 9, for instance, look up at chapter 1, verse 9. He says, these men, these elders, these overseers, should be men holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. So they should be taught men, taught what? Taught the sound doctrine of the faith, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So he says, you're to appoint these guys in every city so that when those come contradicting sound doctrine, the the true faith, the faith of God's elect, these men can stand up and they can and will be able to 
convict and oppose those things that contradict the sound doctrine or the faith of the elect or faith in Christ. And he goes on and he talks about those who come in and they try to subvert, he says in verse 11, whose mouths must be stopped. These who are, uh, he says they're insubordinate, they're unruly, they're idle talkers or their words are empty, empty of what? They're void and empty of sound doctrine. They're talking about a lot of things, but it's not rooted and grounded in sound doctrine or in the scripture. He says, these unruly, empty talkers, these deceivers, those, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert or undermine whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. And then he goes on, he says in verse 13, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. These, these people in your congregation, Titus, he said, that are lazy. That's a hard word, but this is what Paul is saying to Titus. He said they're lazy, they're not grounded. He said rebuke them that they may be sound in the faith. Not in the, so that they're not giving heed to fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. He says, to the pure, all things are pure. To those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. Verse 16, I'm leading up to chapter 2. These people, these idle talkers, these unruly people, these insubordinate people, these that are subverting households, these whose mouths must be stopped. He says, they profess to know God, they profess with their mouth, but what? In works, in their deeds, they deny him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. But, now we come to the but. See, we can't just begin in chapter 2, verse 1, and not understand what he is saying in this letter. But as for you, Titus, do you see the contrast he's joining? But as for you, in other words, Titus, this is not who you are. This is not who I raised you to be. This is not who Christ saved you to be. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. That word doctrine, you know what the word doctrine means? It means teaching. That's all it means. Doctrine's a word we're afraid of. We say, well, you know, doctrine is evil. No, doctrine is not evil. Teaching is not evil. They continued steadfastly, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. What? The apostles' teaching, the teaching of the apostles. Who continued? The church continued steadfastly in the teaching of the apostles. Guess what we have today? We have the canon of Scripture, which is what? It is the teaching of the apostles. We're reading from... The book of Titus, written by the Apostle Paul. We are following steadfastly today in the teaching or the doctrine of the apostles. But as for you, Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine or sound teaching. Verse 2, that the older men be sober. Now let's go through these descriptors here. That the older men should be sober that the older men should be reverent. This is what Paul is communicating here. He just listed that the older men should be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. But look what he says. He says that the older men should be, or that the older men be. That word be is not just how they should 
act. So they're not to learn how to put on an act. They're not to act reverent. They're not to act sober. They're not to act temperate. They're not to act like they're sound in the faith. They're not to act like they're in love or act like they're patient. He says, exhort the older men that they be. This isn't, this isn't an act. This isn't behavior modification. He says, this is who you are to be. See, the problem with the people in verse 16 of chapter 1, they were acting like they were people of faith because they professed it, but in reality, their lives manifest something different. So they would, they would act like they were through their words, but Paul says they profess to know him, but they deny him with their works. It was an act. I can bark like a dog, but that doesn't make me a dog, right? I can talk like a Christian, but that doesn't make me a Christian. What's going to determine? That what's going to determine is who I am. If I am, that's what I will be. If it's not what I am, I can act that way, and I might put on a good act for a long time, but eventually what I am, who I am, is going to come out, right? It just will. And this is exactly what Paul is writing to Titus. But as for you, Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober. That word sober is not just meaning don't ever drink a beer, guys, or don't ever drink a glass of wine. Maybe you should never drink a beer. Maybe you should never drink a glass of wine. That word sober really means circumspect or vigilant. It speaks of an attitude. Uh, it speaks of a mindset that you have, that you understand. You know, how, you know how to be serious when you need to be serious. You know how to be vigilant when you need to be vigilant. You know how to be circumspect when you need to be circumspect. doesn't mean you should never have fun or joke or laugh. But you, you know, you understand the the importance and the magnitude of the life that we're living, right? So he says that the older men be sober, they be circumstant, that they, they be vigilant, that they be reverent. That word reverent means honorable, venerable, respectful. That the older men should be reverent, honorable, venerable, and respectful toward who? Toward everybody, toward God, first of all but also to one another. That the older men should be temperate. That word temperate means self-controlled or moderate. So how does that apply to our life? In a lot of ways. To be temperate. When Paul exhorts the older women, he says... In verse 3, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine. Not, in other words, that you not be drunkards. So temperate. That you not be abusive of any substance. Including chocolate cake. Speaking of chocolate cake, we had this awesome chocolate cake yesterday at Hannah's graduation party. 
I mean, it was like the perfect chocolate cake. You know, I could have eaten like probably five pieces of it if I'd had about a gallon of milk to drink with it. But I didn't. I only ate one small piece. Aren't y'all proud of me? I was temperate. I exercised self-control, not because I didn't want to, or not because I wanted to. I was moderate in my eating of my chocolate cake. Then when I got home later on that afternoon, I was very moderate in the bowl of Tin Roof Sunday ice cream that I made for myself. I still have some for my birthday, thank you, Conway. Now, actually, yours is gone. I think Victoria bought me some more. I was temperate. I was self-controlled. I moderated myself. I mean, those, we need, to mo- we need to be temperate. Older men, Paul says to Titus, Titus exhort the older men to be temperate, to be self-controlled and moderate in the way they live their lives. He's not talking to elders here. He's already given the qualifications for elders. He's talking to the older men in the congregation that the younger men in the congregation are supposed to look up to. And he's saying, hey, you older men, be temperate. Be sober, be reverent, be temperate, so that the younger men, as they watch you, will learn from you. Not to be out of control, but to be self-controlled. What is self-control? It's not something I do through my willpower. Do you know self-control is is the last fruit of the Spirit listed? Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that the Holy Spirit in you is to produce and, and, and is to be manifest in your life. That the older men should be sound in faith. Look at this. Now, you don't see it in your English Bible here. It says that the older men be sound in faith. But that word faith there, if you could read Greek, if we could look at the Greek text, the definite article is there. It's not just sound in faith. It's sound in the faith. It's very definite in what it's speaking of here. It's the same definite article that we see in the beginning of this verse or this book, in the very first chapter, in the very first birth, verse, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of the elect. The faith of God's elect. So, older men, you need to be sound in the faith. Sound in the faith. That is the faith of the elect that are in Christ. The faith. People have faith in a lot of things. There are Buddhists who have faith in their Buddhism. There are Hindus who have faith in their Hinduism. There are Muslims who have faith in Islam. But just because they have faith in something doesn't mean they have faith in the right thing. Jesus didn't say, I am a way. He said, I am the way. There's that definite article again. He very purposefully and very definitely said, I am the way. Paul writes to uh, to this church and he says, You older men, be sober, be reverent, be temperate, be sound in the faith. It's there. Be sound in the faith. Be in love. Not just with your wife. Men, 
Be in love with your wife, but be in love. The word love there is the word agape. We only have one word for love in English, but in Greek, we have multiple words. We've got eros, which is um, sensual love. We've got phileo, which is brotherly love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly That's why it's called Philadelphia. It's called the city of brotherly love. Philadelphia, phileo, brotherly love. We have agape. Agape is, is the divine, unconditional love. When the Bible talks about God's love for us, it always uses the word agape. And this is the word we see here. Be in love. Be in God's divine love. How can we be in that love? That's not something we just decide to do. We understand this because 1 John says, we love him, we agape him because what? He agapes us. We love him because he first loved us. The only way I can be in love is for love to be in me. So love is, yes, it's an emotion. Yes, it's a feeling. Yes, it's all those things. But more importantly, God is love. Love is a person. First John says, for if you abide in God, God abides in you. For God is love. And if God is in you, then be in love. In other words, this is what is to be manifest through our life. Be in love. Be in patience. This word patience or long-suffering means remaining under. It means remaining under the dealings of God. Remaining under whatever it is you're under. Be in patience. In other words, what's the context here? The older men should be, for what purpose? That they can exhort the younger men. So it's important for the younger men to see the older men be sober, be reverent, be temperate, be sound in the faith, be in love and be in patience, be being able to bear up under those things, not disputing and not resisting. Be in patience. Don't be disputing and don't be resisting. Be in patience, letting God do what God is going to do. Then he goes, the older women likewise. Then he says, okay, older men, this is what you're to be. Older women likewise, this is what you're to be. Now let's skip down to verse 6. And the older women are to admonish the younger women, verse 4. Verse 6, likewise, exhort the young men. In other words, likewise, just like the older women to exhort the younger women, likewise, you older men, exhort the younger men. To to do what? To be what? Look what he says. Likewise, exhort the young men to be. There it is again. There's that word be again. This speaks of who we are. What determines who we are? My willpower or my nature? My nature determines who I am. I didn't become a human being because through sheer willpower. No, I was born a human being. I didn't become a sinner because I committed my first sin. I committed my first sin because I was born a sinner. 
And the reason I've got a problem with God is not because I can't manage my behavior well. The reason I have a problem with God is because in my first birth, I'm born a sinner and there's nothing I can do about it. So what needs to happen? I need to be born again. And when I'm born again, I'm born with what? A new nature. And guess what? That nature is not a sin nature anymore. And that nature is consistent with these things that Paul is telling these older men and younger men to be. So therefore, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. That, that, that word, that term, sober-minded, is the exact same term we see in 2 Timothy 1.7. Turn back there, just, just a page or two, back to 2 Timothy we quote this a lot, 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. That word sound mind there, that phrase sound mind, is the very same phrase here as sober-minded. You younger men, here's what Paul is instructing Titus to do. Titus, instruct the older men to exhort the younger men to be sober-minded. To be of a sound mind, to be sane, to be moderate. Exhort the young men to be sober-minded. In all things, show yourself to be a pattern of good works. Now, what's important, who is Paul specifically talking to? In all things, show yourself. He's He's speaking to the older men. He's look, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, to be of a sound mind. So this has implications that goes, goes back to everything that he's saying here to these men. And then he tells these, these older men, he said, show yourself to be a pattern of good works. So how are the older men going to exhort the younger men? Are they going to get all the young men together and set them down and say, okay, guys, this is what you're supposed to do. Okay, Make a list. You're to be sober. You're to be reverent. You're to be temperate. You're to be sound. And get your dictionaries out and find the definition of all these so you know what you're supposed to do. Be in love. Be patient. Be sober-minded. No, that's, that's not what Paul is telling Titus to have these guys do. What he's saying is, he gets to this point, and these men are going, well, how are we going to do this? Do we have a six-week discipleship class that we take all these young men through to teach them how to do this? No, he says, here's how you're going to do it, guys. You're going to show yourself to be a pattern of good works. That word pattern means a dye or a mold. In other words, when they look at you, when they watch you, they're going to know what they're supposed to do because you're going to be doing what they're supposed to be doing. How are they going to learn to be sober? Not because you tell them to be sober, because you live a sober life before them. How are they going to be reverent? How are they going to learn to be reverent and what reverence is? Because they're going to watch you live a reverent life. They're going to watch you live a temperate life. They're going to watch you be sound in the faith, in the things you say, in the things you do. They're going to watch you. You're going to show yourself to be this to them. You're going to show yourself in love. You're going to show yourself in patience. Show yourself. Be a pattern, a dye, a mold, a form of good works. In, in, in some things, no, in all things. That means on the job, in the family, at the weekly assembly when the saints come together. 
in everything you do, show yourself to be a pattern of good works. You older men, show yourself to the younger men, be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, in doctrine, showing integrity, in doctrine, showing reverence, gravity, that word gravity, it speaks of something of substance. In, in other words, here's what Paul's saying. In doctrine, show gravity. In other words, don't give them a bunch of fluff. They don't need a bunch of feel-good fluff. They need substance. They need the real thing because that's how they're going to grow in the faith. In other words, don't tickle their ears with a feather. A feather doesn't have much gravity. Don't just tickle their ears. Give them something of substance here. In doctrine, in teaching, showing integrity, showing reverence, showing incorruptibility or sincerity. In other words, don't say one thing and do another. Don't teach corruptible things. Don't teach things and say things and do things just to gain popularity. Don't stick your finger up in the wind and see which way the wind's blowing and then do accordingly. That's corruptible. He said, be incorruptible in your teaching. This is, Paul is talking to older men and telling them to exhort the young men to be all of these things. Exhort them to be of sound speech that cannot be condemned, having nothing evil to say of you. We misunderstand this sometimes. Do people say evil things of Jesus? Yes, they did. Why? Because Jesus was corruptible? Absolutely not. Because they didn't like the things that Jesus said. Did they say evil things about Paul? Yes, they said evil things about Paul. Why? Because Paul would not corrupt himself. Paul would not compromise himself. So it doesn't mean that we just do whatever we need to do to make sure no one ever says or thinks anything bad about us. We understand the context of this, and we understand how to apply this by the very words preceding it. When he says, show yourself, show integrity in your doctrine, show reverence in your doctrine, and corruptibility in your doctrine, if they're going to speak evil, let them speak evil, but don't give them a reason... Don't give them a corrupt reason to speak evil. Jesus was spoken evil of by the Pharisees, but they were not justified in their evil speech. Paul was spoken evil of by many people, but they weren't justified in their evil speech. Peter addresses this thing. He says, look, if you guys are going to suffer... That's fine. Suffer for the sake of the gospel. But if you go out there and steal something, if you go out there and, and you know, abuse somebody and you get in trouble for it and you suffer for it as an evildoer, then you're getting what you justly deserve. But if they are persecuting you and saying things and doing things for the sake of the gospel, and then that's a whole different thing. You should glory in that tribulation. You should glory in those sufferings because that is the suffering Jesus Underwent. That is the suffering us apostles are undergoing. There are many who went before you and who will come after you who will suffer the very same things. Amen? 
So these are not simply, listen, these are not just concepts that we sit down and teach people. These are things that describe a lifestyle. And the only true way to teach these is to live these. Did you hear me? The only true way to teach these is to live these with one another. So let's talk about the foundation of discipleship. It's found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Let's turn there real quick. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The foundation of discipleship is the authority and the commission of Christ. So here, Jesus gives the mission to the church. It's pretty hard to misunderstand unless we want to. The foundation of discipleship is the authority and the commission of Christ, the declaration of Christ's authority and the great commission command to go therefore and make disciples. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That is significant. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Does that leave any place that's not under his authority? Now think about it. Is there any place right now, anywhere, that's not under the authority of Jesus? Is there? If you believe there is, then you don't believe the words of Jesus. If you believe the devil still has some control, some authority somewhere outside of the realm of God, then you don't believe the words of Jesus. All, say it with me, church, all authority, all authority has been given to me where? In heaven and on earth. That covers everything and everywhere. You need to settle that with yourself. Go, therefore. How can we go, therefore? Because he has been given all authority. And he has given us the authority to go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. This is the foundation of discipleship. This is our commission. This is the commandment God has given me. And that's foundational duty. This is the foundational duty of the church, is to go and to make disciples. Everything we do must be built on the foundation of discipleship with the goal always being transformed and fruitful lives. Everything we do must be done with the goal of seeing transformed and fruitful lives that glorify the Father. John 15, 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Why does, why does the Father want to make us fruitful? Because, because he wants glory. Because he deserves glory. You say, well, that's kind of narcissistic. God, you know, God wants glory. Yes, he does. He not only wants it, he absolutely demands it, and he absolutely deserves it. And we should not have a problem with that. Because that's who he is. And we exist for his glory. There is a huge misunderstanding in the church. That we think the church exists. Well, we would never say the church exists for my glory, because we know that's, that's a sinful thing. But we think the church exists for my for me, like, I'm supposed to get something out of it. Well, you do get something out of it, but that's not why the church exists. 
The church doesn't exist for you. The church exists for him. And what you get out of it is not ultimately for you. It is ultimately for him. And it all ultimately goes to what? It goes to his glory. And when we submit to that, when we surrender to that, and we realize that is what is proper, I'm telling you, that's when we begin to experience and enter into the joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's when we will find our greatest joy, our greatest fulfillment. We will revel in His glory. But if I'm trying to get something out of it that's not intended for me, if I'm trying to make it something that it was never intended to me, I, whether I realize it or not, you know what I'm doing? I'm opposing God. And I'm always going to have this conflict. And this is why you see people who can't ever seem to find because there's this constant opposition. Because they're trying to get something that was never intended to be gotten. You are created to provide something for God. And that is that something is glory. And I'm going to tell you this. If people spend their whole life on this earth opposing God, you know what? God's going to be glorified through that life of opposition. He will be. In everything, through everyone, God will be glorified. You might not believe that right now, but I promise you, one day, you will stand in eternity, and you will know that what I just said is true, because you're going to witness it, and you're going to experience it. Those people that are destined for hell, that are going to spend eternity in hell, God will be glorified by their eternal punishment. That, see, that, that, that doesn't, compre- that doesn't, you know, that just like doesn't calculate with us. How can that be? Because God's going to be glorified in everything. God created everything. The rewards we'll get one day and the punishment those who reject Christ will get one day. God created all of that. And all of that will work for His glory. The gospel, the same gospel that saves men is the same gospel that will condemn men. Every person who will spend eternity in hell will be there because they rejected the gospel. And it was the gospel that put them there because they rejected it. That same gospel that put them in hell is the very same gospel that will give you an eternal life in heaven in the presence with God because you accepted that gospel. That gospel saved you. The gospel doesn't work for some and doesn't work for others. The gospel works, always works, in every way. Whichever direction you want to take it, the gospel works. It has to. You know why? Because, and this is what Paul means, Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. His arm is not short that it cannot save. That doesn't mean the gospel worked for those who are saved, but it didn't work for those who aren't saved. Are we saying God wasn't powerful enough? It didn't work for them? We can't say that. And this is why we have to trust. Listen to me, church. We have to trust in the power of the gospel. This is why the church has got to get back to preaching the gospel instead of tickling people's ears with self-help and success. This is what has filled the church all around us. And we wonder why we see no transformation taking place in our nation. We wonder why our nation is in such horrible shape. You know why? 
Because the church refuses to be salt and light. Because she's more worried about tickling people's ears and making people happy instead of giving them the truth that may challenge them. Do you know the gospel will either draw you to Christ or it will cause you to reject Christ? It will. It's going to do one of the two. The same gospel that saved me also caused me to reject Christ for the first 23 years of my life. And there was a time when I knew that I was rejecting Christ. I mean, for a long time, I didn't even think that way. But there came a point in time when God opened up my eyes and He opened up my understanding and I came to realize that I was rejecting Him. I knew exactly what God demanded of me and I wouldn't do it. And every time I willfully rejected God, you know what? The gospel worked. The gospel condemned me to hell every time I rejected Him. But do you know what? It was that same gospel that had been condemning me to hell that ultimately saved me and gave me life in Christ. If I would have never come to faith in Christ, the gospel was still the power of God and it would have accomplished what what it was supposed to do. Because if I would have never come to faith in Christ and God would cast me into hell, I would never have been able to stand before God and say, you know what, God? I don't deserve to go to hell. I'm a good guy. No, I'm not a good guy. I wasn't a good guy. God didn't save me because I'm a good guy. God saved me in His grace. God was justified in sending me to hell, but His gospel saved me. The same gospel that had been condemning me because of my rejection of it. This is what Paul is writing to Titus. He said, Titus, this is what you got to preach and teach to the church. Don't let those people think that they can find salvation any other way. Don't let them think that they're going to go and keep some laws and make some animal sacrifices and and do some good works and and they're going to be justified by their works. Don't you dare let them think that. I don't care how much pressure they put on you, Titus. Don't allow them. Let your doctrine, let your preaching, let your teaching, let it have gravity, Titus, so that these men don't believe that there is another way to salvation that they understand the magnitude of this message, that it is the gospel that will save men, but it's also the gospel that will condemn men. Their acceptance or their rejecting of it. But if you don't preach the gospel, then they cannot be saved because men will not be saved apart from the gospel. It is through the preaching of the gospel that men shall be saved. And so discipleship, this is the duty of the church, is to make disciples. The duty of the church is not to just get people to walk this aisle and shake my hand and repeat a prayer after me, and then they're okay. They may be, they may not be. That model is nowhere found in the Bible. The model found in the Bible is make disciples. We don't make disciples up here at the altar. That's not where disciples are made. You might say that's where converts are made, but the Bible doesn't say go therefore and make converts. It says go therefore and make disciples. Discipleship is a lifestyle. Conversion is an experience, but discipleship is a lifestyle. Jesus didn't say go give men experiences. He said go 
make disciples. My question to you, church, is are we going to obey the Scripture? Or are we going to go with the flow of the culture? Are we going to do what the culture has taught us to do? Are we going to follow Madison Avenue? You know what Madison Avenue is? You all know what Wall Street is, right? Madison Avenue is where all the advertising agencies are up in New York. All the people that get you to buy Coke and Apple computers and and whatever brand that you just are in love with, that's where those people develop their marketing strategies to get you to buy into their brand. You know what the church has done? The church has adopted the tactics of Madison Avenue. And we've developed slick marketing campaigns and slick strategies. And we've turned children and we've turned youth and we've turned adult ministry into marketing tools to get people to come to our buildings. And we think if we got a bunch of people in our building, then we must have a, really something special going on. Really? Jesus fed probably about 15,000 people one day. His marketing strategy worked really well. He multiplied loaves and fishes. He had 15,000 people eating out of his hand. And the next day, there were even more looking for him because they wanted what? More loaves and more fishes. And you know what Jesus did? He didn't put a billboard up and say, here I am. He didn't say, guys, we need a bigger mountain. Because you know what? We had 15,000 today, but tomorrow we're probably going to have 20, 25, 30,000. Because they're going to all bring their friends. We need to find a bigger mountain, a bigger field, a bigger tent. No. You know what he did? He ran from them. He went across the boat without his, went across the sea without his disciples. He made those people look for him. And they came and they said, hey, Jesus, man, we've been looking for you. How come you ran away? We came back for more loaves and fishes. He said, that's exactly right. You, you came because of what you got. So then you know what Jesus did? The slick marketer that he is? He said this, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me in my kingdom. And they went, what? What did he just say? What, what did he just, did I just, did he just say eat my flesh and drink my blood? Hey, Jesus, did you, did you just say that we have to eat your flesh and drink your blood? He said, that's exactly what I said. If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me in my kingdom. And you know what those people did? They turned to each other and they said, this is a hard saying. And that day, many turned from Jesus and followed him no more. And his meeting became so empty, there was nothing but his immediate disciples left. And he turned to them and he said, what about you guys? Are you guys going to leave me too? And in essence, you know what they said? We've burned all of our bridges. And besides that, you have the words of life. You know why those guys didn't leave? Not because they understood what Jesus said. Not because they didn't have questions about what Jesus said. They didn't leave because there was was a measure of real transformation that had taken place in their lives. They were there because they recognized, I don't necessarily like what you're saying, Jesus. I don't understand what you're saying, but you, here's the key, you have the words of life. For all of those tens of thousands who walked away and followed him no more, 
They didn't follow Jesus because he had the words of life. They followed Jesus because Jesus gave them something they wanted. Because they were looking to have their flesh satisfied. And Jesus said, I am not going to satisfy your flesh. Matter of fact, I'm going to do the exact opposite. You don't know it, but I'm going to crucify your flesh is what I'm going to do. This is discipleship, church. This is what we're called to do. This is what we're called to be. This is what we're called to make. This is what Paul meant when he wrote the words, showing yourself. Showing yourself means we're to be an example for others. That We are showing what we are telling. Discipleship is not taught, though it involves teaching. Discipleship is lived and modeled through a lifestyle that teaches. And the biblical model of discipleship is the older exhorting the younger. How? By show and tell. Now, this is the foundational model Paul is instructing Titus to implement in the church so that discipleship becomes the pattern in the church in obedience to Christ's command. All right, we're going to stop there. It's 12 o'clock. And next week, we're going to come back and we're going to talk more specifically about the model of discipleship. The model of discipleship. Amen? And next week is our mission meal. So I need you to sign up on this and just put it on the table in the basket back there so we'll know how much food to prepare. And um, if you find a friend, bring a friend. The model of discipleship. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Are you, are you following me? I realize... I realize that the way I say a lot of things and, and the things that I'm saying are contrary to much of what we have come to accept as normal in the church today. But this is the problem. This is our problem. I'm telling you, there is something happening in the church. Obviously, there's something happening in Christ Fellowship, right? Right? And some of you are going, yeah, it doesn't look too good either. You know, a lot of people have left. Yeah, they have. I'm going to tell you what, a lot of people don't like the message I'm preaching to. But the funny thing is, I talk to pastors all over. I talk to, I talk to a pastor this week. Comes from a totally different background from me. It is, it is just amazing to me. The, the very same things. And here's what I'm saying is, see, we are a part of the church, the Lord's church. And I'm telling you what, God is setting his house in order. He's setting his house in order. And there's a lot of foolishness taking place in the church right now. We're calling it God, and we're calling it good, and it's neither. It feels good, it looks good, sounds good. It tickles my ears and it makes my flesh feel good. But I'm telling you what, that will not bring transformation to anyone's life. And this nation, if you guys haven't noticed, this nation needs transformation. And it's not going to come because we put a different person in the White House. You can, you can pick any party, 
You can make them as conservative. You can make them as liberal. You can make them Tea Party. You can make them whatever party you want. You can put them in there, and it won't make one bit of difference. Not one. You can kick everyone out of Congress and elect all new people and put them in there. And I tell you what, it won't make one bit of difference until the hearts of men are transformed. We're putting band-aids on problems. We're putting band-aids on cancer. And we need a supernatural touch. We need the divine hand of God to move. And I'm going to tell you what, the divine hand of God is not going to move until the men of God, the leaders that God has put in his pulpits, begin to preach truth, even to their own hurt. And I'm telling you, bring your Bible to church with you. Bring your notepad to church with you. You follow with me. And if you, I, I want you to come. If you think I'm out of the book, please come to me and tell me, Pastor Jeff, you're wrong here. This is not what the Scripture says. This is not what the Bible is communicating. Please, if you love me, you owe it to me to do that. I have yet to have one person do that for me. Not one. Here or not here anymore. None of them have come and said, oh, they've come and told me what they don't like about me, but they've not come and said, you're out of the book, you're wrong. This is unscriptural. And I've told you this before, and I'm going to tell you again, my commitment to you as your pastor, I am committed to truth. I'm committed to this Bible right here. And I'll preach this truth to you even if it hurts your feelings because it may hurt your feelings, but in the long run, it may set you free. Jesus hurt a lot of people's feelings, but his words were spirit and they were life. And I'm telling you, we've got to be people that are committed to truth. And you owe it to me, and you owe it to yourself, and you owe it to those around you. Bring your Bible. Bring your notepad. And let's learn together what the Scripture is teaching us. Let's grow together in what the Scripture is teaching us. Let's not just give lip service to the Word of God. Let's not just come and have a great time on Sunday and, 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 and talk about how wonderful and how fun and how great the service was, but then go out and it means absolutely nothing Monday through Saturday. What is the point of that? If that's what we're doing, then I'm ready to just pack it up and and go somewhere else. That's not what I'm called to be a pastor for. I'm not here to entertain you. The church isn't here to entertain you. You're not here to be entertained. You're here to be equipped to go out into the community you live in and make a difference. God wants to transform your life. And through your transformed life, God wants to transform other lives. You've got to catch this vision. You've got to. This is how we've come to be who we are today. This is why we're a church. This is why we're preaching and teaching the Bible. Because somebody, somebody heard the gospel. Their life was transformed. They transformed. Listen, the gospel, the kingdom is growing. 
from the time the baby Jesus was birthed in that manger 2,000 years ago, look how the kingdom of God has grown. It didn't grow because people went to church on Sunday, heard a nice message, and then went home and didn't do anything with it. Didn't have any transformation in their life. And they just waited six days to go back and have another good time at church. That's not what it's about. If what I preach and teach to you doesn't challenge you, if it doesn't offend you, if it doesn't make you uncomfortable, then I'm not doing my job. If it doesn't make you stop and think about what's really going on in your life, then I'm not really doing my job. If the gospel doesn't offend you, then I'm not preaching the gospel. If the gospel doesn't draw you to Jesus, then I'm not preaching the gospel. It's going to do one of the two. It's either going to repel you or it's going to draw you. Don't be afraid of that, church. When you talk to your friends and family, don't be offensive to them for the sake of being offensive, but don't be afraid that the gospel might repulse them. You're not going to be the one to determine whether they're saved or not. God will. But you've got to be willing to speak the uncompromised word of God. You've got to be willing to live the uncompromised word of God. You've got to. Jesus was. You think, just think, I challenge you to do this before you come back next week. You think about the ministry of Jesus. Read the Gospels. Look at the ministry of Jesus. Jesus had a ministry of diminishing numbers. But yet, what Jesus did literally changed the world. Don't live life focused on this narrow point. Get a big picture view. Understand that God can use everything that's taking place in and around your life, and he will for his purpose, for his glory. Amen? Let's all stand. Father, we thank you for the word of God. Lord, I ask that you challenge us. Challenge us with your truth, God. God, don't let us be apathetic, comfortable believers. Lord, don't let us just do what has become normal in the church. Lord, don't let us seek after things that only make our flesh feel good. Father, help us to be men and women that are committed to truth, even to our own harm, even to our own discomfort that we would hold your glory, we would hold you above anything of ourselves. Above anything of ourselves. Father, I ask that you would by your spirit move in your church. That you would, God, transform us by the power of your spirit. That you would challenge us, God, through the truth of your word. You would give us the courage, God, to walk as men and women of faith. Men and women of the faith. The faith of God's elect. The faith that Christ died to establish in his church. I pray this, Father, and that you would be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Have a great week. Remember, no class tonight, no ball, uh, dodgeball tonight, and uh, we're going to go support Sharon's family.
Tomorrow at 10 o'clock, we'll celebrate her life. God bless you.